Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest fox casting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we present the conclusion of Shifting Loyalties. In part one, the Governor General's great work was set in motion. In part two, that work hit a snag and faltered, even as the Majestic destroyed Malifaux's quarantine zone. Will his plan come to fruition in part three? Stay tuned to find out. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Malifaux Prisons and Corrections. Do you dream of holding the lives of helpless wretches in your hands? Do you see convicted criminals as nothing more than a free labour force who are undeserving of basic human dignity? Do you have an underdeveloped sense of empathy? Then perhaps a career in corrections is right for you. Apply to Superintendent Queeg and begin a career in incarceration today. The sunset was a scarlet smear over the western peaks, but the work continued. The convict gangs laboured like machines, hauling rubble out to the edges of the field that the Majestic had so brutally cleared, piling it into timber forms to make a rough new barricade. The ironclad itself sat silhouetted against the bloody sky, windows glowing. Standing on a stub of stone wall, Captain Dashiell Barker watched its searchlights sweep up and down the perimeters. Admiring the viceregal transport, Dashiell looked round. Master Quig, the guild's new superintendent of prisons and corrections, was standing behind him. What a creation it is! I trust, Captain, that you do not put any faith in these malcontent stories about his excellency. Which stories? Dashiell asked, tilting his great hairless crag of a head. Their stories say this and stories say that. I just go with what I feel in my water. If he could be here for this, then he would be. It's appropriate for a man of his station to be seen upholding his office, Quig said primly. I'm sure that his absence, if absent he is, is unavoidable and unfortunate. He frowned and tapped his toe in the dust. The superintendent's tall, thin body swayed at the shoulders when he walked, like a spring-legged tin toy. His bony, horsey face was shaved so closely it gleamed, except for a wax-black moustache as slick and trim as the rest of him. No official uniform for his position had yet been devised, so he was wearing an expensive-looking morning suit with a sash and badge to mark his office. His top hat was shrouded in gauzy silk to keep the dust off it. The long plaited whip coiled in his hand gave off a cloying smell of harness oil that had rapidly got on Dashiell's nerves. As the afternoon had worn on, Dashiell had taken to making his rounds in an unpredictable zigzag, ostensibly to catch malingerers, but mainly aimed at evading Quig. Quite why the man had decided Dashiell was some sort of kindred spirit was a mystery, 
But the more he listened to the superintendent's nasal voice, the more uncomfortable he became. You'll observe, Captain, the uniforms, Quig would declare. Proper dress of the convict is essential to achieving the iron discipline that the lawless temperament requires. No more of this business of penning them up in whatever they were wearing when they were arrested. No, it is indulgent. Every one of them is now in my ledgers by their uniform number, not by name. Or, you will have noted, Captain, that the whip has remained almost unused. I find that after administering a proper course of initial correction, the whip is barely necessary, but for particular direction. I count myself in the fore of scientific thought on the subject. The newest studies show that over-regular flogging stimulates the humours in unpredictable ways, and predictability must ever be our watchword. Or, it is long overdue, do you not agree, Captain, to bring the rationality of science to this calling, that in an era of such advances in the natural philosophies, we should realise that a permanent scientific cure for criminality might be within our grasp. I myself have been developing my techniques ever since my days as a schoolmaster, and I say with all modesty that these criminals are no harder to break than the most spirited of my classroom charges. What an opportunity there is in Malifaux to improve and perfect my methods. Behavioural, chemical, even surgical treatments. I have heard excellent reports of your doctors Smedley and McMorning, whose knowledge, I'm sure, will complement my work invaluably. No more will the criminal classes roam the streets, wanton, dissipated, and a threat to respectable citizens. Mark my word, Captain, His Excellency brought me to Malifaux just in time. Oh, that was bad enough, but the convicts themselves were worse. Dashiell had been dismayed to see that the convicts were unshackled and barely guarded. But even without a single restraint to be seen, they shuffled along in formation as though their ankles were weighted, and their bodies chained together. None of them spoke. They didn't even grunt or moan when they hefted chunks of stone or swung sledgehammers. And they never stopped. Dashiell hadn't seen a single one of them pause in their work for food or drink, or even to stretch their back or mop their brow. He saw several of the more sickly-looking ones visibly quaking from exhaustion, but they kept on through the motions of their tasks as though they were being dragged through them. Dashiell remembered Quig's exclamations about Smedley and McMorning, and wished he hadn't. Dashiell enjoyed his promotion, and his special little errands for Secretary Matteson, because he was hard to rattle and he didn't ask questions. But this was a whole different kind of unpleasant one that had managed to seep through even his thick hide. He just wanted the night to be over. Only a wheeze of panic escaped Wilkerson's open mouth as the great winged shape swooped on them beneath the flare light, but his body was already moving, dropping him to one knee, so that the tip of its staff whooped through the air above him in an arc that would have shattered his skull. His finger tightened on the trigger, and the guns on the barrel fired. The second flare streaked away on a lower arc, illuminating the street full of oncoming dead before it buried itself in the face of a corpulent, rotting thing that stood head and shoulders over its companions on three rusting girder stilts. It thrashed its arms, skittered and fell, the flare guttering out. Still running on raw reflex, Wilkson made to reload before Lieutenant Santos clouted his shoulder. Fall back, you idiot. Back behind the barricades. Your men all guard. Here they come. Dead on the ground. One high. Rifles up. High. Scrambling back over the barricade, Wilkerson looked up to see the broad violet wings of an enormous adult Nephilim flicker through the majestic searchlight beams as it circled the great machine. Muzzle flashes began sparking from the ironclad's portholes 
and a moment later a matching fusillade began around him as the guards at the barricade opened up on the horde of resurrected creations on the darkened road. But even as his hands ran on, breaking the flare gun and pulling new shells from his belt, Wilkerson was staring up at the frantically waving searchlight beams. There's two of them, he said out loud. Two of them! Pissing hell, there's... Three, another one, another, five. He swung the gun up toward the Majestic. Overhead, they're overhead. They're out bloody in front of us too, someone shouted at him. Get another flare up before they're on us. Wilkerson sent another flare over the barricade, kicking off a roar of gunfire around him as the guards opened up into the shifting play of shadows. A swarm of battle-like chittering things swooped into the barricade line bringing cries and curses from the men. As they swirled upward again, another Nephilim ploughed through them out of the dark, smashing and clawing them from the air before it vanished back into the high shadows. In a searchlight beam over the Majestic, he heard a doubled scream of rage, male and female voices, as two hurtling Nephilim clashed in mid-air and broke apart again. The cries mingled with echoing heavy-caliber reports as the Ironclad's riflemen tried to bring the beast down. They're fighting each other, Wilkerson breathed, but that was all the thought he would have time to give it for many hours. He realized that his nostrils were clogged with the stink of rot, and the space just beyond the barricade was filling with lurching, snarling shapes. The light from the guttering flare glistened on rotting flesh and gleamed on tarnished metal as it faded out. Grim-faced in the dark, Wilkerson broke the gun open and fumbled for another flare. The manor's heavy, oak-and-iron double doors boomed open as if a cannon round had hit them, almost knocking the night footmen off their feet. The Governor-General strode into his house without a backward look as the doors slammed themselves shut again behind him. He bore down on the cluster of servants and officers in his entrance hall, the way that his ironclad had borne down on Perdita Ortega out in the Badlands. He no longer moved like anything natural. One moment he was gliding forward with the smooth momentum of an iceberg, the next, his body was jerking and stuttering through the air, freezing and then advancing several steps in an eye blink, as if he were a poorly run projection in a moving picture hall. For a moment, he seemed about to physically crash into his flinching staff, but then a moment later, he was standing on the great stair behind them, glaring down. Well, the little knot of uniformed guard officers, masked and gowned lawyers and manor clerks, stayed motionless. After a moment... Lucius Matteson stepped forward. As ever, the secretary wore a blank metal mask that somehow seemed as expressive as a living face with whatever demeanour his body language projected onto it. Tonight it was silver, a colour he tended to wear for legal business. Bronze was for mundane administration, gold for special occasions, pewter for outings. More and more often lately, the Governor-General had fantasised about tearing the mask away and dragging Matteson down Old Spire Road by his hair giving everyone a good long look. There he would roar into the secretary's naked face. There, now everyone knows. How clever did you think you were being, really? Did you think I didn't realize? He watched the light from his own skin and eyes reflect in that curving silver visage between the mask's luminous green eyes, then flick the thought away. No time for daydreaming now. 
We have been concerned about your whereabouts, Your Excellency, Lucius said. He didn't sound it. His voice was as silky and unruffled as if he were remarking on a moderately pretty sunrise. There is trouble abroad in Malifaux tonight, and the city's streets are dangerous. The city is dangerous to faithless cowards in need of rulership, the Governor General told him. Not to me, nor should it be to any of you. On that note, I guess, said Lucas McCabe, we've been at work. He straightened up from his insolent slouch against the banister post and held up a little leather satchel. That resurrection lair was just where you said it'd be. Northern Zone, right against the Crew Street rookeries. Practically under their noses, except the folk living up there all look half-dead and smell worse anyway. A little diffidently, he stepped forward and offered it to the Governor-General. He simply stared at the bag. It's just as per spec, sir, the items you described wrapped in the page of the book that was sitting open next to them. We left some spring snares set up to say hello to whichever grave worm owns the place. I'll send a couple of my boys back around there in a day or three to see if they've come home and had a surprise. If the city's safe to travel across by then. He couldn't help adding as the Governor-General yanked the satchel away from him, but the glowing giant didn't pay him any further attention. Sir? said Captain Matreski. Her guild-mounted corps uniform was spattered with ichor from the things she'd had to kill on the way across the river to the manor. Something had left a fresh and bloody scratch across her cheek and down the side of her neck. Before she could say more, Lucius Mattison stepped easily in front of her with a sheaf of papers in one kid-gloved hand. The star charts from Lady Duffield's observatory on the north bank, he said. Both the originals you gifted her and her own modified versions. I took the liberty of reading them in the carriage. She was rather excited about the recent changes in the constellations, although I do not believe she understands what they mean. And of course now she will have to begin charting them from scratch. He sounded amused. The papers tore in one or two places as they darted out of Lucius' hands and threw the air into the Governor-General's. Furthermore, Madison went on, I took refreshments with two senior partners in the Katanaka Trading House this morning. I came away with the components our designs require. There was a scrupulously modulated emphasis on the hour. He held up an unmarked envelope between two fingers. A moment later it was ten feet away, crumpled in the Governor-General's hand, bathed in the pearly aura of the man's skin. Tell me. The inventory of tokens is complete now. Matheson said. The works we discussed will be ready to... Damn the tokens, the Governor-General roared back at him. In that instant he blurred and shifted, for a moment standing between two flickering replicas of himself. A little shockwave of acrid power made the visitor's eyes water and their exposed skin tingle and ditch. The tokens no longer matter. I'm no slave to works and rituals any more. I am above them now. The air around his brow shimmered. So shut your mouth, Lucius, if that's even what you have under there anymore, and get out of the way of my officer. Captain, tell me what is happening in my city. Lucius stood frozen for a moment, and then gave a bow that was over-elaborate to the point of insolence. Matreski stepped around him, a guard trooper behind her. Sir, the new reclamation site has been under attack since sunset, and we believe it is now overwhelmed. The fighting is pushed back along Scrivener Street and now into the curtains. 
The rival corps are holding the bridge, and a dozen guardians are en route to relieve them. Lieutenant Demir is moving three peacekeepers by barge to the Scrivener Street Wharf, with infantry reinforcements to try and reform the original barricade line. Most of the sanctioned casters are standing in reserve on the downtown riverfronts under Lieutenant Din. Some locals in the area have locked themselves indoors, but there are large numbers fleeing the district. The northwestern streets and the Notgate Bridge are... Where? The Governor General's eyes closed, and for a moment he rocked in place as though he were about to fall. Colors swam and swirled in the carpet under him, and an odd angular pattern burned itself into the polished wood of the banister. No. What are we fighting? What are we fighting? And where? Reports are unclear, sir. Initial contact was with resurrected creations at the worksite. A message came from the Ethervox and the Majestic that Neverborn were following on the heels of the dead things. Neverborn do not consort with resurrectionists, the Governor General rumbled. No matter how much they hate us, they hate the dead things more. I am repeating the reports as they came to me, sir, the Captain answered, not entirely managing to keep the shake out of her voice. Dead things and Neverborn. Phantasms and shadows are moving in among the houses with full dark. That was the last message we had from the Ironclad. The Ethervox began to receive some, uh, strange transmission, sir, and we shut it down. The shape on the landing shuddered and gave off a grating wheeze that was barely recognizable as laughter. And where are my loyal agents, my companions in history? Lady Justice has been sighted at the wharf fighting with dead men coming up out of the water. Mr. Hoffman is at the construct hangars, making a second squadron of peacekeepers battle-ready. We have no reports on the whereabouts of Sonia Crid. No, the Governor-General laughed again. No, I don't suppose you do. He turned and climbed the second flight to the long gallery, and not one of the men and women at the foot of the stairs was game to follow him. The explosion bowled over any unfortunate guards who hadn't already thrown themselves prone, riddled the air with fragments of rock and brick, and shattered scores of windows inward, pelting the rooms inside with splintered shutters and flying glass. Dashiell Barker didn't give a fart for any of that. He'd done the guards the favor of roaring a warning as he threw the bomb, and as for these tenement houses, well, anyone who decided to put their feet up at home on a night like this could go crying to the GG if they didn't like what their stupidity ended up doing for them. What did bother him, though, was that was the last of the dynamite stakes he grabbed from the construction crew's stash at the new reclamation zone. And despite his best efforts to pick his targets and not to pull the trigger until he saw the whites of their eyes, or at least the filthy, roomy yellow-gray, he was unnervingly aware of how low his ammo was getting. This hellish night was furnishing him with plenty of dead comrades, whose bandoliers and pouches were helping a little, but the guild lines were being pushed back through the city at a brisk pace and thought of lingering to reclaim more rounds while the night closed in on him. No. Up, he bellowed. My face is too damn pretty to be clawed off me for want of a trooper who'll stay awake after bedtime. A shadow wickered toward him at head height down the street. Running on pure adrenaline-driven reflex, he pivoted out of its way and swung his baton up as it passed him. There was an animal shriek, and something furry and musty-smelling flopped to the pavement ten feet behind him. See how easy it is. 
On your feet, you lazy sods. The new reclamation and the beleaguered ironclad in the middle of it were long gone behind them. And, for that matter, so were the demolished barricades on Scrivener Street. He had started to try bearing north whenever possible, wanting to get to the riverbank and to a bridge or barge back to downtown in the Guild Enclave, but he was having trouble telling which way that was. The street lamps hadn't been lit, and the tenements were high enough to block any attempt to spot landmarks. It was horribly easy to get turned around. He suspected he'd led his little impromptu platoon in at least one circle already. He suspected he wouldn't be blessed with the time to do that again. The streets had been in a panic when they spilled back through the barricades, and then a running battle for what had felt like hours, a whirling, blurring, omnidirectional cat-and-mouse murder spree. They'd met up with other guards, squads of troopers, formations of clanking guardian constructs or roaming peacekeepers that had acquired entourages of terrified hangers-on, taking comfort from the big machines. But then they would be split again, by some pack of monsters, laughing contorted shadows, or just strange lights and dizzy disorientation. As he led them out of the narrow street and through a little triangular plaza scattered with wrecked wooden barrows, Dashiell tilted his head this way and that, watching for flares, listening for gunfire or whistles. He couldn't begin to piece together how the battle was unfolding. Was he lost in a tiny pocket of no man's land, just needing to hold on until help came a-marching, or was the whole of Malifaux being overrun? There was a crash of wood on stone from somewhere on his left, and a scream from one of the guards as half the heavy grocer's barrel came scything out of the dark and smashed him off his feet. Dashiell looked around to see a slab-shouldered shape racing toward them on all fours, like some bestial primate, giving a groan that did not pause for any intake of breath. Another dead thing. Then came the hard crack of a peacebringer and a yellow muzzle flash. The thing's groan hitched and stopped, and the slapping sound of its limbs petered out as it fell, one hind leg shot in two. Do you happen to need assistance, Captain? There was enough moonlight in the plaza for Dashiell to make out Master Queeg, not a hair or button out of place, posing atop a wrecked cart with his whip uncoiled and his peacebringer pistol drawn. Oh, are you kidding me? was Dashiell's ungrateful thought as he watched the superintendent step down, walk to the scrabbling forearm corpse, and drive the peacebringer's cleaving blade down. Now, now, Captain, up and about, no lollygagging. Quig's laugh was a nasal monotone, as unpleasant as the rest of him. Where? Dashiell began. No, never mind. Get in with us. And save your rounds if you can. We don't know how much longer we'll be. Bloody hell. Quig was pointing to two convicts behind him, visibly loaded down with ammunition pouches. How did? Where behind? Dashiell surged forward with his collier up. The convict that had been picking up the crushed trooper's ammo pouch did not look up as a pack of little shapes came scurrying around an upended cart. They giggled and squealed like children who just had presents placed in front of them and threw themselves on the man's back. Who's got a shot? Dashiell shouted, trying to aim, thinking of the bullets as much as the man. In a manner of heartbeats they'd borne him down and started dragging him away. Dashiell could see slick, dark blood puddling in the moonlight. The man had not cried out, but he was still moving. He was still trying to reach back and pick up the ammo pouch. What a magnificent field test tonight has been, Captain! Behind him, Quig had holstered his pistol and was clapping his hands. Do you see? 
Even in their final extremity, they will still attempt to carry out their orders. We have expunged even fundamental self-preservation and replaced it with total obedience. Such a feat as can only yet be carried out here in Malifaux. But, my dear captain, I fully but... He broke off as Dashiell rounded on him. How many of them have you sent to their deaths like that? I started with two hundred. But they only left the worksite with about half that. There wasn't time for an ac- You've said enough. There couldn't be more than a dozen sagging, exhausted shapes behind Queeg. It was a minor miracle they had that many left. Dashiell motioned to them. Get in among my guards. We're going to try finding a way to the river. And then, well, we're going to see. But you make one more speech at me tonight, Queeg, and I'll ram this baton so far down your throat, McMorning will have to roll you face down on the slab so he can pick your teeth out of your fundament. Clear? As the proverbial day, Captain, and there's no need to shout. Right, you lot. Don't stand and gulp. Load up now, fast as you can. And human cries were echoing over the rooftops, and childish laughter was still floating across the plaza. The windows of the trading house overlooking the plaza's north end were filling with sobbing clouds of green light. Something whose proportions were all wrong was standing beneath the arch to the lane on their east, silently watching them. Dashiell Barker looked around as his guards reloaded and took positions among the timber wreckage. He nodded. Dashiell was not a good man, nor a kind one, nor an honest one. But he was a soldier. And when you were in a fight together, then you were in it. Carefully, deliberately, he loaded his collier. Coming in from the road there, he called. Who's closest? Right. Hold, everyone. Hold. Aim. Fire! The private room, the Governor-General had given it no other name, not even in his own mind, filled a quarter of the manor's third floor. When he had first seen it, he had thought nothing of it beyond a vague irritation at this big, inconvenient, oddly windowless empty space with no apparent use. Once the event had shaken the world and he had grasped the nature of his great work, he had found a use, and it was perfect. He did not remember walking into the room or closing the doors, although they were now closed, locked, and bolted behind him. Sometimes when he'd drawn a great breath of power into himself, his attention drifted so far away into the strange invisible landscapes that overlay Malifaux that the physical ephemera around his actual body became hard to focus on. More than once he'd found himself in a strange corner of the manor, having passed through a wall or floor without realising it. Twice he had found himself standing in midair. He supposed Lucius would have an explanation of what it was, some windy, minutes-long lecture, placing ancient books in front of him and pointing to things on the pages. He had grown sick of Lucius' explanations. He knew what it was. He was out of alignment, that was all. He had been turning Malifaux's tidal, unshaped energy into a great machine of flesh, law, symbol, and power. He simply had to add the final component, fit himself into place in the machine's heart, once it was complete, there would be no more of this. No more of any of it. He looked around him. To the ignorant blunderer, and one or two of those had found their way in here at the start, 
before he'd had his household staff ruthlessly culled at the disobedient and the overcurious. It would look like the private museum of an eccentric with a bizarrely eclectic taste and a non-existent attention span. Token sat on blocks of painted plaster, or in little glass dishes on the floor. Some had lines and patterns joining them, drawn in chalk, paint, red blood, or black. Some of the sigils had burned themselves into the floor. This was his work, his engine in miniature, or at least the most sophisticated model of it that it was possible to create with symbolic representations, basic matter, and three crude dimensions. His gaze roamed over the banner that had hung behind him when he had cast his work on All Hallows' Eve. Below it was the heap of rusted, bloody manacles bundled in a prison uniform that anchored the control spells he had created with Queeg. In front of that was a fine metal collar sitting across the blank pages of an open book. When that work was done, the guild's sanctioned casters would be no more capable of self-will than the convicts were now. Token after token, in perfect array. Machine parts from the factories and railroads, bones or vials of blood taken from their labourers. An ethergyre compass from the rooms of the Malifaux Exploration Society bringing an added mystical weight because the man it had been taken from had later died deep in the quarantine zone directly for want of it. A ball of earth and corpse fat collected from among the roots of the hanging tree. The Governor-General held up his hands. He glowered at the satchel McCabe had brought him, and it vanished, leaving its contents hanging in the air. A crow feather talisman and a collection of hand bones from the Resurrectionist's workroom. He did the same with the silken bag Lucius had given him a bundle of silvery spindles and gears wrenched free of some cleverly built device. He gave a quick, savage grin. He was impressed that Lucius had managed to steal these. If the Katanaka had any idea what they were, he suspected they would have made it far more difficult. And if Lucius had known, he might have refused to hand them over. Might have tried. He gave a noncommittal grunt and the tokens fell to the floor in a clatter. The remains of Duffield's star charts landed on top of them. The charts rustled and shifted, although there was no breeze in the room. Had he looked down, he might have observed the constellations they mapped shivering and whirling on the paper, as though his own gravity were distorting even their depictions. He knew that already. He had been standing in the manor's gardens, face upturned to the sky, when he had seen everything move above as he could feel it moving below. That had been what decided him. The work and this world was ready. His city needed him. It was time. He stepped over the pile without looking at it and walked into the centre of the room. So much had become clear to him since the disaster at Sunbeam. All these labours, building the tower to Avatarhood stone by stone, had rewarded him. And then it had broken. The tower had crumbled under him and he had fallen. Humiliation. But he had risen back from it, would rise further. He held out his hand. His banner crackled, writhed as though it were alive, and fell to the floor in burning shreds. The plinth that held up the cog from the construct works exploded like a sugar glass shell around a dynamite stick, and the cog crashed to the floor. The ethergyre flew apart into scraps of steel and brass. The star charts at his feet became ash in an eye blink and blew away in a breeze that vanished as abruptly as it had started. A ruler could not depend on any but himself. 
He had allowed himself to sag down onto the rituals and tokens like crutches, and forgotten that he must learn to walk without them. At Sunbeam, the town seals had exploded and burned, and he had fallen to the ground. The Governor-General was wrapped in a cloud of fizzing purple-white light now, spilling from his eyes and mouth and coalescing out of the air. It was a light that many in Malifaux would find familiar. It was the same hue as the shockwave that had rolled across Malifaux after the comet had fallen into the bayou. It was the light of the event. He breathed it in, gripped it in his fists, hooked it with his mind and willed it to wrap him tighter, sink into his flesh through his very pores. Actinic flashes burst from his eyes, ears, nostrils, and mouth, and each time a power flare racked him, his convulsions drew the whirling cloud in tighter. He began to groan with the pain, and the effort as his boots scraped along the floor and parted with it. Now he hung in the air, arms outstretched, head thrown back. Manifestation through artifice alone was impossible. Will was the key. The other fools who'd had the great gift just fall into their laps. None of them would ever grasp what he had to do to claw his ascension out of the very stuff of this world. He let out his breath in a roar and dragged still more power into himself. Now he was surrounded by the shadows that English Ivan had seen over the square and sunbeam, the shapes of thrones, chariots, scepters, and mantles. The governor-general grew, his shoulders becoming even broader, his head rising toward the roof. His uniform respun itself into a dazzling creation grand enough for a monarch, and with a flexing of his will he dragged still more power in. This would be no short-term manifestation, to rage briefly then drain away like a flash flood. Let the other so-called avatars drift at the mercy of their energies, astonishing themselves when they manifested. He was not like them. He would not stop, would not end this. The monsters were coming out of the night, the way they had in those first days. All of Malifaux looked to him. He would do what he had always done. What was necessary. He would become rulership, but he would be no mere ruler. He would be... The word dropped perfectly into place in his mind. He would be a tyrant. Hanging at the center of a tornado of white-hot light, he laughed. He could feel it in him, a vast, mad geyser. But he was controlling it now, he was sure. He was harnessing... The aura brightened. The remaining tokens in the room were incinerated in quick white pops of light. With a small sound like rushing wind, the aura of power collapsed into the Governor-General and imbued him utterly. He was suspended in light and silence. All his physical senses were gone, but he could feel, he could feel, feel the pure crystal chill of the living blizzard over the mountains, the spark of human spirit beneath it, and the frozen thing that looked out of its heart. Feel the suffocating dark of the labyrinth and the necropolis as it flowed like blood through strange veins of earth and stone. Feel the whirring motions of the moons and stars overhead and understand the strange mirror of their movements and, yes, their thoughts. Feel the bitter enmity of the life that sprang up out of sight of the sun in the deep forests and the bayou and feel the wound at Kythera where the life drained out of the world again. Feel the heat of the furnaces Feel the crystalline thrum of the soulstone veins beneath the mountains, plunging down into the earth, keening like a plucked steel string with the power inside them. Feel the great pattern, the turning of the structure he had built, 
Another layer over all the traces and designs that the powerful had sought to carve into Malifaux over the centuries and longer. Feeling his reach extend through the ley lines and symbols, his bindings and spells. Now he felt it in all his power, as sure and certain as the cold weight of a scepter gripped in a fist. At the heart of the machine his will spread and blossomed. His past evaporated behind him, his name vanished. In that instant, he was the tyrant. He had one moment to enjoy the sensation before the light filled his brain, flowed with his blood, ignited his marrow. Every scrap of his tissue was infused. The nuclei of his cells flared like matchheads, his nerves blasted into incandescence. His uniform burned off him. The outer shell of the avatar that was trying to form around him rippled like a mirage. His body was a blazing etheric torch, and still more power poured in. More, and more, more than he had prepared for. Far, far too much. The Governor-General's last living thought was, wait. The walls to the private room vanished so completely that there was not even dust left to ride the shockwave. For the tiniest instant, the last moment in which the burning shape on the third floor was recognizable as human, the rest of the manor was untouched by the strange excision. And then the shape was gone, and the shockwave hollowed the manor out in a second. Hard blue-white light shone from the windows in beams bright enough to look almost solid. It shone between the roof tiles before they shattered, and around the doors before they were slammed off their hinges. The interior walls crumbled and flew apart like chaff in a hurricane. The light seemed to seep through the mortar itself, so that every brick and stone of the walls was outlined in a beautiful azure halo. The glass in the windows was gone. Not blown out, or even vaporized, just... gone. The roof erupted in blue and indigo light. Splintered beams and shattered tiles started raining onto the manor grounds. There was a grind of stonework from the walls as though the bricks and stones were trying to flex and rearrange themselves, and then the whole top floor vanished in a storm of flying debris. The terrifying light from the windows was dying, and coarsening into a flickering yellow as fire took hold inside. On the hillside facing the manor, across the Great Breachway railway line, the hanging tree burst into furious life. Its limbs animated and thrashed like the limbs of an angry kraken, the corpses decking its boughs, swinging and creaking, thudding against its trunk and each other. Several of the ropes gave way, sending bundles of dead flesh arcing through the air. Gradually, as the light faded from the manor's windows, the tree slowed, quieted, and was still again. In the prison camps scattered across the city and along the railway lines and mine trails, the quiescent convicts suddenly convulsed to life, all in the same instant. They bucked and screamed as the uniforms they'd been made to wear exploded into rags and then into flames. Lost in their seizures, oblivious to the burning, they shouted one word over and over, Wait! 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 The already beleaguered guild forces that had tried to stand in the way of the never-born and undead rampages began to collapse the moment the manor did. The guards' sight began to blur. Their hearing filled with echoes and wind, and their movements became weighted and lethargic, or wild and jittery. 
strange prismatic corpocent arc from the ruined blades of the witchlings and their handlers, and from the collars and brands of the new sanctioned casters. Some were likely touched by the backlash. Some caught it full force. Along the downtown barricades, where casters and large witchling packs were most numerous, the guild lines crumbled as their magical support was consumed by sapphire flames and burned to ash in the gutter. In the corpse-littered rubble field of New Reclamation, the great ironclad majestic was torn apart from within as the soulstones in the etheric furnaces detonated, touching off the ammunition magazines a moment later. Most of the guards who tried to dig in and use the ironclad as a fortress were killed in the chain of explosions. The rest lasted no more than minutes against the Neverborn who came leaping and swooping in through the smoke, screaming in triumph and tearing the upper hatches from their hinges. By dawn, the Majestic would be a silent, smoking tomb. Mythic Night, they would come to call it later. Out around the Badland borders, town after town erupted into a strange delirium of fear and exhilaration. People came out onto the star and lamp-lit streets, not knowing why they did, barely knowing why they'd snapped to wakefulness. Sometimes it was not until the next morning that the townspeople discovered that the beautiful town seals the Governor-General had brought them had come apart, deformed as though in a great flash of heat, or shattered as if they'd been frozen brittle and then struck with a cannonball. All they knew was the fear that the psychic shock had left in their minds, and the strange sensation of a burden lifted, the unfastening of a tight collar on their thoughts that they didn't realize they'd even been wearing. Those who'd been able to touch the power of the event could feel that it had been drained from the land, like blood seeping from a wound. Some were still able to draw on it from time to time, but the days of grand manifestations were over. Every town, every settlement and family drew together a different story about what had happened in the land that night. Stories that would grow and intertwine and be passed back and forth over campfires and around smoky saloons for years to come. Mythic Night Lucius Matteson stood in the front doorway of the manor. He carried no light, but he barely needed it. His eyes were exquisitely sensitive. He could see the holes in the ceiling where debris had crashed through from above, and the strange deformations in the architecture where the power of the immolation had reshaped whatever it washed over. He wondered how the idiots who would be here at first light would explain that to one another. He stood alone. They'd all run for the doors when the wrenching power build-up above them had become too agonizing to be near. Lucius was the only one who'd come back. McCabe had led most of the survivors away and into the city. Quite what they thought that would do for them, Lucius couldn't imagine. His hearing was as keen as his sight. And he could hear, faintly but unmistakably, the sounds of gunfire, crackling flames, shattering glass, screams and laughter. What? Lovely music. Lucius took a dainty step forward, his hands on his hips. His balance was perfect, his posture exemplary. He took another step, spreading his arms out, setting his hands just so. He slipped his mask from his face and dropped it to the soft carpet amid the rubble and ash. Through the lower halls and galleries he danced a delicate gavotte, sometimes in time to the sounds of carnage filtering in from the city outside, sometimes in times of the sparks of sensation inside him 
as he felt the severed ends of the Governor-General's magical bindings whip-cracking away through the ether. His dance sped up, lost its mannered nature, became triumphant, athletic. As he leapt up the stairs, balancing on the rail and then vaulting to the upper gallery in a single leap, it became inhumanly ecstatic. He leapt and whirled, limbs blurring, and his fingertips scoured and gouged the walls and door frames where they touched them, no matter how lightly. Through all the empty rooms that had once been his masters, Lucius danced. Just how long he spent he never did know, but by the time he came to rest the sun was rising over the distant peaks, bleaching the darkness out of the eastern sky. Columns of smoke rose from all over Malifaux City, and Lucius could not see a single lit window or street lamp. He stood there for perhaps a quarter of an hour, soaking in the scene, before he collected himself. With cat-like steps, he picked his way back down the front hall. His mask lay on the carpet. Lucius bent over it, studied the distorted reflection of his real face in its polished surface, then picked it up and slipped it into place. His cane lay two paces beyond, and he plucked it up and twirled it in his hand as he walked out onto the manor's front steps. There was a crisp morning breeze coming up off the river, bringing the scent of burning. Lucius stopped for a moment to enjoy it, and then sauntered out to greet the new day. it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.